This is Digital Impact for Q4. I'm Chris Delatore. Today's four questions are for Vera Franz, Deputy Director of Open Society Foundation's Information Program, and Ben Hayes, Director of AWO, a legal firm and consulting agency working on data rights. In February, OSF published a report looking at how the EU General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, impacts non-governmental organizations in practical terms. The report offers practical guidance based on compliance challenges and specifically addresses the importance of defending social sector organizations against attempts by governments and corporations to misuse the GDPR against them. Vera, we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of the GDPR, and we've seen a lot of changes, not only in the European Union, but also here in the United States. Of course, I'm referring to the CCPA, uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which went into effect this year. Now, your report focuses on the GDPR, but I would recommend it to anyone in the social sector dealing with data, regardless of where they operate. Early in the report, you point out a general absence of advice specifically geared toward the social sector, commercial interests notwithstanding. Why is it so important to help CSOs consider the broadest context of compliance for either of these regulations? Thanks, Chris, and thanks for having us on your podcast. So when we started out um, with our research for this report, um, one thing we observed is that uh, NGOs were tying themselves up in knots over their mailing lists, um, which resulted in flooding of our inboxes with big consent requests, which were mostly not necessary. So in essence, we saw NGOs overcomplying with um, GDPR. And at the same time, in my um, role at OSF, I support a a lot of work to enforce the GDPR vis-a-vis -vis big tech, the big corporations, including Facebook and Google. And I observed there that some of these big um, companies were um, undercomplying. That's not me saying this. This is European regulators stating as much as well. So we observed this um, phenomenon, and this was an indication for us that some guidance force in the society was really needed. And as your question suggests, Data protection compliance is not a discrete bureaucratic exercise, exercise for NGOs. I think, or we think as the authors of this report, it's really about two big things. First, it is about forces civil society living by our values and more specifically protecting our constituents and partners. They can be marginalized, vulnerable members of society or whistleblowers or similar. And protecting them means protecting their data against abuse once those data sets are in our systems. More importantly, GDPR compliance is also about protecting the resilience of our own organizations, I guess by extension, our space for action, or in other words, minimizing our tax surfaces. Uh, as we all know, society is in the business of going after some of the most powerful in society, be they governments or corporations, to hold them to account. And in the process of doing so, we make powerful enemies. And uh, we believe uh, that if we don't get data protection compliance right, our opponents may use this against us. Now, to be clear, the abuse of law uh, against society is nothing new. 
it goes back many years, even in the digital space. So I remember, remember 10, 15 years ago, the Russian government abusing, going after NGOs by uh, using their illegal Microsoft Office licenses as an excuse. So this is a well-known tactic. But we are in an age today where the environment for civil society is really getting more hostile, including in Western democracies, so including in the EU. OSF, of course, is painfully aware of that change in climate as well. And so what we did with this report, what we wanted to do is to find out whether a new body of law, the GDPR, in this new climate of growing hostility would be abused, and if so, how? So that's really what we tried to do with this report. Ben, to Vera's point, and as you mentioned in the report, with all of the good the GDPR represents for the sector, the regulation can also be used against NGOs. Could an oppressive government use the GDPR against nonprofits, for instance, to shut down an organization it doesn't like? And also, to Vera's point, are free societies immune? Could the regulation be weaponized by a corrupt administration in the U.S. or U.K.? Thanks, Chris, and, and thanks again for having us on the podcast. Um, you know, this is this is something that motivated us to write the report, right? And I guess, you know, with the caveat that you've already given, you know, we're, we're huge fans of the GDPR in the sense that we think it's right that, you know, um, the European Union has tried to set a high bar for for um, for all entities handling personal data to do so in a responsible and accountable way. Um, but as Vera said, you know, as with all um, all regulations, you know, there there is a significant potential for misuse or abuse. And fortunately, we haven't seen too much of that yet. But we we do document a few cases in the report. Um, one of which which provides a good example of of you know how this this can and has played out um, is a, an investigative journalist collective in Romania called Rise, um, who basically crunched published a, a bunch of data um, alleging demonstrating um, the involvement of uh, government officials in corruption. Um, and shortly after this material was released, you know, the, the Romanian Data Protection Authority, which is supposed to be an in independent um, branch of, of the Romanian government, sent uh, the RISE Collective a letter um, demanding an explanation of all of the sources, requesting access to the data, um, using requirements in the GDPR that shouldn't, in our view, have been applied in this case, but do exist, you know, asking why the data subjects were not informed about um, you know, the, the potential use of their data and so forth, and actually threatening um, this group of investigative journalists with, with a 20 million euro fine. Um, so, you know, that happened. So, you know, there, there's no doubt that the, the, the threat of this is real. Um, it, it's good to report also that there was some strong pushback um, from civil society, a, a bunch of digital rights organizations, um, Privacy International, European Digital Rights, and others um, wrote to the European Data Protection Board, uh, which is the sort of preeminent body established under the GDPR to provide um, guidance on the implementation of the regulation and just said, look, you know, this is a manifestly um, an abuse of the GDPR. It's clearly um, not what the regulation is, is, is intended to do. Um, the protections, you know, um, that, that should apply to a group like RISE have clearly been ignored. And to its credit, you know, the, the EDPB, the Data Protection Board, um, you know, wrote publicly to the, the, the Romanian um, 
Data Protection Authority setting out um, its concerns in this case. Um, there's a, there's a few others. As I say, it's not a it's not a, a massive trend that we should be you know um, particularly frightened of. But there are a few other cases that we document in the report. Um, I guess you know just just on this, I, I think it's not necessarily just um, just repressive governments that we need to worry about. Um, if you look at the way regulation um, has been, you know, to use the word we use in the report, weaponized against civil society, um, we do see a link between um, the way, you know, malevolent actors have used, as Vera said, you know, like the example with the Russian government, but the way malevolent actors have have used um, regulatory requirements to, to um, to go after, you know, civil society actors. So j just two quick examples. Um, I don't know if you guys have followed the sort of the stuff around deplatforming. So you get activists um, basically writing to financial service providers and saying, you know, you're, you're this this particular user of PayPal or whatever it is is an extremist or is associated with terrorism and you know ergo you as the platform operator should should uh, cut your ties with this organization and, and you know because of the way the publicity machine works um you know we, we're seeing that quite a lot and th there's quite a crossover in the way that um the gdpr might be used now we at a awo we actually act already for a couple of um non-profits that have been subjected to what are what are in our view vexatious complaints to regulators um that you know concern various matters but it, it could be something as simple as not having a gdpr um compliant privacy policy on your website or or it could be an allegation of something more serious but but you know of course what happens is you know the regulator then um as it's duty bound to do will then follow up with with the civil society organization concern um which can have you know a huge impact on them Vera, in light of what Ben just said, right now the future of journalism seems to depend on achieving a balance between free expression and data protection. Deplatforming, it's a good example of mediating this effect. The GDPR includes exemptions for media organizations, but not all organizations providing support services to journalists are considered as such. What does the GDPR mean for journalists and the organizations supporting them? Anyone out there who may be working in this field, what would you say to them right now? Yeah, I think uh, journalism, or um, generally speaking, investigative journalism and research more specifically, uh, have a very interesting, I would say, relationship uh, with data protection, data privacy. Because if you think about it, on the one hand, um, investigative journalism research are aiming to create greater transparency, to expose injustices, corruption, etc. And there may be there doing so, running into data protection problems and data privacy problems. Yet, of course, in order to do their work, they at the same time rely on strong privacy and data protection frameworks, for example, to protect their sources. So it's a very interesting um, uh, space. And I guess free expression data protection are indeed two rights that need to be balanced. Uh, the good thing is this balancing exercise is something we're very familiar in the human rights and social justice community or in social society more generally speaking, as often it is about balancing different rights. But 
going back to the journalism question, how this tension is solved in data protection is, as you suggested, um, through exemptions from data protection or free expression for journalism. Um, and um, there is um, an interesting question of who falls under it. And uh, there's a, an interesting example we came across in our report. So Global Witness, which is an anti-corruption investigation reporting outfit, uh, they covered corruption by a mining company active in Africa. And the founder of that company and others associated with it brought uh, Global Witness to court for a violation of data protection. Now, interestingly and crucially, uh, the UK data protection regulator, which weigh in uh, as this court proceedings were happening, clarified that the journalistic exemption in data protection applied not only to conventional media organizations, but also to civil society organizations engaged in journalism and public interest reporting, such as uh, witness, global witness. And I think the importance of this cannot be overstated um, as we have many NGOs today investigating and uncovering injustices. So this is a very important um, uh, clarification. Uh, but uh, to be clear, there are challenges that remain at the intersection of free expression and, and data protection um, and journal with a focus on journalism. So, one of the most interesting um, uh, challenges we identified is that in recent years, we saw the rise of NGOs providing research support services to investigative journalists. Um, and it's currently unclear under GDPR whether these entities are actually can rely on the journalistic exemption. The reason is that they gather, analyze, visualize data but they don't publish, they support others to publish. And some national implementations of the GDPR state that the journalistic extension only applies to activities of entities that intend to publish. So this is an interesting open question that we found uh, a gray area, so to say. We've also you know, explored if these newer types of NGOs would be covered by other exemptions such as archiving and research exemptions, but that's also challenging, not clear. And so ultimately what we did in our report is we called on the European Data Protection Regulators and also the EU Agency for Fundamental Rights to provide updated guidance on the relationship between data protection and free expression. Ben, let's shift to how CSOs are using data protection laws to push back on attempts to shrink civic space. The report looks at subject access requests, which are derived from the right to access data collected by governments and companies. How are civil society organizations using this practice to protect the rights of individuals, and how can they assess their vulnerabilities to those who would weaponize it against them? Thanks, Chris. Um, so, I mean, I, I think if we take a, like an, an expansive view of civic space and say, you know, let's look at all the ways in which um you know big tech um big data is is you know transforming um our democracy and our economy and 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 the relationship between civil society and power um sars emerges as like a you know a super interesting tool um sars subject access requests for civil society organizations 
um, not just to find out, um, you know, what exactly it is that particular entities are doing with data, which is essentially the, um, you know, the, the, the rationale for, for, for having subject access requests and in, enshrining that within the law. Um, but also to pursue, um, you know, more interesting and creative um, means of, of pushing back against some of these um, companies. So I, I'll give you sort of three um, quick examples. Most people, I'm sure most of your listeners will be fully aware of the Cambridge Analytica um, case, but what they may not realize is that all of the litigation within that began with a single subject access request, actually by a US citizen, um, Professor David Cowell. And, you know, he learned about Cambridge Analytica, um, heard that, that they may have been involved in um, Trump's election campaign, and instructed uh, a UK lawyer, actually Ravi Nayak, my partner at, at AWO, um, to make a subject access request on his behalf. And, and Cambridge Analytica, I think this was almost certainly the beginning of the downfall. Um, they actually replied and said, you know, basically you're a US citizen, um, you have no more right to your data um, and are no more entitled to a response than a Taliban in a cave, um, which was, you know, an absolutely astonishing um, response to someone exercising their legal right. Also erroneous um, under the law because, because um, it doesn't matter where you're situated if you make a, a subject access request to a um, a European data controller, but but all all of that and the failure the failure of um, of Cambridge Analytica to respond as they are legally obliged to do so um, to this subject access request opened the door for all of the litigation that followed. Um, similarly, we, we we've got um, a, a couple of great organisations actually that are using subject access requests just to to push back on the gig economy. So. You have companies like Uber that will say, um, you know, we're not, you know, we're not a bright, we're not obliged to provide our, our drivers with full employment contracts because they're, you know, they're not employees because their job description is different and their responsibilities are different, or we're not obliged to comply with certain environmental regulations because, you know, the nature of our business is such that, you know, we fall outside and obviously they come up with all sorts of ways of um, trying to exempt themselves from the law that, that many people think ought to apply. Um, and, you know, what, uh, you know, unions and organizations working with them are now doing are basically organizing gig economy workers to submit subject access requests, then creating data trusts um, to, to house the responses, to, to create an evidence base that pushes back precisely on um, the kinds of arguments that, that these guys are using in courts. And, and th those involved think this can actually be a... <coughs> a more effective way of getting to where we need to be than going through, you know, lengthy legal proceedings that could ultimately um, take years to achieve. And just the, the third one I was going to mention was um, facial recognition, you know, in the news almost every day, um, you've got companies like Clearview um, popping up and, and, you know, making um, lots of waves in the, in the digital rights community. Again, um, you know, the, the use of SARS and the demand for, data controllers to facilitate um, subject access requests is leading to tangible um, changes in, in, in some activities of those companies. And in, in my view, can potentially, or can and will potentially lead um, to you know, some very interesting litigation. Just the flip side of that, you asked um, what 
can civil society do to make themselves more resilient? And again, you know, this sort of goes back to the conversation we were having at the beginning. Um, it is the case that the, you know, the regulation applies equally to all entities. And we are starting to see, um, you know, vexatious, malevolent actors using subject access requests. Um, they have no interest in getting the data, um, but like, you know, the people we would call the good guys um, want to use the SAR process um, as a way to get legal leverage into um, a civil society's organization's activities. And, and, you know, this is really why we, one of the, the main motivations for drafting the report and focusing on civil society resilience. Um, again, it, it, there's a couple of cases that, that your listeners can refer to um, in the report, but the, the key thing being that, you know, if you don't, um, as a civil society organization, you know, have a robust policy in place for A, how you're doing your data management, B, how you're responding to subject access requests, and three, you know, take um, significant care when you're doing those things. You know, you are opening yourself um, up to, you know, a, a regulatory pressure and potentially litigation um, in exactly the same way that the, the Cambridge Analyticas of this world have done so. Um, so the report, I'll finish with a plug for the report again. Um, it sets out just, you know, a, a bunch of recommendations, best practices, um, things that in our experience, um, civil society organizations, NGOs have, have really struggled to deal with or, or haven't really thought about, right? And some of this is pretty complicated, but there are some some base level stuff that, that we think, um, you know, all civil society organizations can and should be doing. So ho hopefully um, those from that community who are listening will, will check out the report um, and find it useful. And I'll give you the website for AWO. That's awo.agency, www. Uh, yes, and if you're interested in learning more about Open Society Foundations, our work to support civil society, including um, in the digital age, um, how we support um, work to hold digital power to account to protect information democracy, go to www.opensocietyfoundations.org and follow me on Twitter at vfranz73. Thank you. Vera Franz, Deputy Director of Open Society Foundation's Information Program, and Ben Hayes, Director of AWO. Thank you. Digital Impact is a program of the Digital Civil Society Lab at the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society. Follow this and other episodes at digitalimpact.io and on Twitter at DGTLImpact with hashtag 4Q4Data.